Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. If you need a Bible, there's one right in front of you in the back of a pew. They're the black ones. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we will be studying verses 6 through 10 this morning. Everyone there? All right, let's read it. Paul writes in in verse 6, So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we need you this morning. We come broken, weary, weak. We need your spirit. Lord, teach us by your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So growing up, uh, my mom used to say to me, in in those especially tender moments, she would say, Nick, I love you infinity times infinity. And I'd be like, wow, thanks mom, man. But then I'd go and think about it and I don't, I, I'm, I don't get that. What, what does that even mean? Infinity times infinity? My mind was blown, but yet I knew it meant something truly special. And I was, I'm wondering, do you ever try, as, you know, as we're thinking about eternal things, do you ever sit there and try your utmost and yet fail to get the value of it? To get the value of eternity, heaven, forever, it's hard to grasp. And we were reflecting on that in our home group a couple weeks ago because we were discussing this term, the eternal weight of glory there in chapter 4, verse 17 that Justin talked about. And we're struggling to comprehend how do we connect that vast, big concept to our life? How do we connect those dots How do we even allow that reality to seep in and actually affect us? It can be difficult to look forward to something when we have no idea of the magnitude of it. It can be even more difficult to know how it relates to my life, my day, my job, tomorrow, right now. And last week... um, Matt taught verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5, and it started to get a little more real because he started to talk about our bodies and this gut feeling that we all have that this, this, cancer, suffering, death, all of these things that Cindy talked about this morning, these things that, we, that have touched each of our lives, whether personally or someone we love, that this stuff is not how it should be. We just have this feeling. This, this just does not compute. 
And Matt talked about the groaning there in verse 4 of chapter 5 that we all experience in this life, which is something I think most of us can relate to. But we're still left with that question of how, how does this groaning and this, this hardship, how, does, how do we connect that with what's coming? We're left with the question of what to do about it. What do we do about it tomorrow? If it's true that what's coming will make all of this other stuff pale in comparison, then why not just get a hobbit hole and, and get cozy and, and just try and be as comfortable as possible? How does the reality of the body that awaits us and the glory that's coming relate with our daily lives? How do we connect these dots between our life to come and our life right now? And so here in verses 6 through 10, we sort of get Paul's view on this. It start, the rubber starts to meet the road. We get Paul's answer to the what to do about it question Right in the middle of it, in verse 9, he says, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So Paul's aim in life, what he does with this hope, is he sets to work. His aim, whether he dies or whether he keeps on living, is to please Jesus. But we still must ask ourselves, why? Why should we make it our life's aim to please Jesus instead of just accepting salvation, enjoying every bit of life that we can? And we also have to ask, if yes, that is the thing to do, how? How do we go about escaping the fear, the apathy, the distraction, and get to that place where Paul is at, willing to live for Jesus, willing to die for Jesus? And sometimes it's easier to be willing to die for Jesus than it is to be willing to live for Jesus every day. So we're going to tackle the question of why or Paul's motivation in verse 10. And then we're going to circle back and go through verses 6, 7, and 8 to discover sort of his method or how he goes about it. So we're going to kind of go a little out of order. So we're going to start in verse 10. So we're looking at Paul's motivation. What is it that, that gives him that drive, that, that oomph that he has to make it his aim to please Christ? So in verse 10, he writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay. So we're going to talk for a minute about judgment. You guys excited? (laughs) The Bible refers to God and gives him the title, Judge of all the earth, which means that at the end of all things, when everything is said and done, God is the one who decides what's okay, what's not. He's the one who gets to determine each of our individual fate to determine what happens next. Now, that's not the only role he is given in the Bible. He's also given the title of creator, redeemer, and judge. And I took that straight from Justin's message from Numbers. Um, But he is judge. But the Bible also declares that God the Father has bestowed 
the role of judgment over to his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we're talking about judgment, thinking about judgment, it's a scary word. And I want to just kind of talk through it a minute. There are two future judgment events that uh, the Bible talks about. The one you've probably heard of and maybe even are thinking of right now is called the Great White Throne Judgment. This is the one Jesus talks about in the book of Matthew when he says he will separate the sheep from the goats. This is the one John talks about in the book of Revelation where God will separate those who are written in the book of life, whose names are found, and those whose names are not. This is the heaven and hell judgment. This is the big one. This is not the one we're talking about today. There is another judgment event that the Bible talks about. This is the one Paul refers to here, which is the judgment of Christians at the judgment seat of Christ. So this, rather than being about eternal fellowship with God or eternal separation from God, this judgment is about Jesus doling out rewards and commendation for Christians or the lack thereof. So I, I have an analogy, but it's, it kind of breaks down. But I want to use it because I think it's helpful in differentiating these two judgments. If any of you have worked at Microsoft or a corporate job, I've never worked a corporate job, thank goodness. Um, couldn't do it. But then people say, I couldn't draw blood every day. And I'm like, fair. Um, but a corporate job, you, you have what's called like the performance evaluation every, every year. Um, but you also have the conversation that follows up after that, which is like the bonus conversation, right? Like you have your, your big event with your boss where you sit down and you talk about what you did right, what you could do better. Um, and Anna tells me that sometimes people get fired at that meeting. Um, I don't know. But, and then you know, if, if everything goes well in that meeting, you have a fo- some kind of a follow-up conversation later where your boss goes, hey, um, you know, you did this, you, you performed well at the bug bash and the LTMO meeting and the ATP progress uh, junction. Just corporate speak, I don't, I don't get it. Um, but, um, so great, we're gonna give you this much money. Here you go. And you're like, yes! Or, or it's like, you know, you could, you could have improved in, in a lot of ways, um, and so we're just going to give you this much. And you're still, you know, you're still hired and all that. Um, so the difference between the two judgments that I'm talking about are sort of that. And it totally breaks down because the great white throne judgment is not one where you sit down with God and, and parse out what you did wrong and what you did right. However, um, it's if we're going to just keep going with that analogy, it's kind of like if you're a Christian in that meeting, you, you do do enough things that would get you fired, but then the same boss who is talking with you says, by the way, I, I, I took care of all your work, and, and I'm just going to count it towards you. Know, towards you. That's, that's kind of what it's like for Christians. Um, because our works will never get us to heaven, right? It's Jesus' work that gets us to be in relationship with him. So this judgment seat day 
is when Jesus evaluates and rewards the stewardship that has been given to each of us as believers. Why? Christians are those who have accepted the generous gift of salvation that God has given through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and have therefore entered into a relationship with Christ. So unlike believer or sorry, unlike unbelievers who will be judged on the basis of not entering that relationship, Christians will be assessed and rewarded based on how they responded to this loving relationship that they are in. I know this is a little confusing. So I want to read a couple passages that, that shed a little bit more light on this specific judgment of Christians. The first is from 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. And this is the day that we're talking about. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he, will he or she will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So it's about this assessing the work, evaluating the work that's been put up on top of the foundation of Jesus Christ that we did as Christians, and receiving or losing rewards accordingly. You're still a part of God's family, but if your work consisted of perishable materials, i.e. things that don't carry eternal weight, i.e. stuff that promotes your own glory, you lost out on something. So that's, that's sort of the negative aspect of this judgment. But Paul sets his gaze not on that negative aspect, but on the reward piece. So there's another verse that, that sheds light on that, his perspective on it, which is from 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, From now on the crown of righteousness is laid up for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who crave his appearing. So for Paul, it's not that he's scared into obedience because of this judgment. It's that these rewards for Paul were worth investing his entire life in, more than anything this earthly life could provide. And this is what lit a fire in his bones. And so you might ask, this talk about rewards, is getting a reward a good motivation? If we're seeking rewards, how are we to avoid a works-based system for ourselves? It's a great question. But I want, I want us to look at or think about what work earns the crown of righteousness that I just read. He says, not only will Paul receive this, but all who crave Jesus appearing. That's not something you can check off a list, like, 
All right, I'm going to work for a reward. I'm going to crave Jesus appearing. This is a life's posture. This is a deep down shift in your priorities. To crave Jesus coming. To long for his coming. That is what earns you a reward. It's, it's cool. We're saved by grace, but we're saved unto a life of obedience. We're saved unto a work that God has called each of us to. And Paul says this applies to every single Christian. In verse 10, he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due. We all, individually, you, me, have a personal date on the calendar when we will sit with Christ and we will have to give an account of the life that he gave us. And I know it can be a little bit nerve-wracking, but we just have to remember that it's the same gospel that he's given to each person, but we all have different giftings, we all have different circumstances, we all have different spheres of influence, we all have a different calling from Jesus, and that's what we're called to give an account for. So I know a personal date on the calendar to give an account for your life is... I immediately get scared when I think about that. But let's just remember a couple things. First thing, you're saved by grace, not by works. Paul says that in Ephesians 2, clearly. No one can boast in their salvation because we are saved by grace. Paul is the king of this concept, justification by faith. So if Paul can hold this tension of being saved by grace and yet saved unto a life that we will give an account for, then I have to hold that tension too. And it is a sobering tension. If you look at verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So there's an, ele- there's an element of reverence that needs to be a part of this life that we're giving back to God. We're not earning salvation. Second thing we have to remember. Verse 5 led us into where we're at now. And he says, God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And we're going to get back to this. But he progresses and says, we walk by faith and not by sight. So this, this evaluation is less of evaluating your works and more of evaluating your surrender to the Spirit. How much of your life did you give over to the Lord and let Him take control? Give up your ambitions, your works, your earnings, and take on His leading. That's what we're going to be evaluated on. How much we surrendered. And lastly, I just want to remember who it is that's judging. It says, the judgment seat of Christ. That word judgment seat um, is a Greek word, bima seat. And they would have known what this was talking about. It's a, sort of a place within the town that proclamations were given out from. And it's very interesting, and I think great for us to remember, 
The same word is used of the judgment seat of Pilate when Jesus stood before Pilate. So this judge, Jesus Christ, is the same judge who subjected himself to the judgment seat so that he might take on all of our sin. It's the same Jesus. Praise God for that Jesus. So the last thing I want to point out in this verse is that little phrase at the end. It says, in the body. I like that little phrase because it reminds us, just like we've been learning for the past several weeks, that our physical bodies are not just a dingy jail cell for our wonderful soul. God cares about the life that we live in our physical bodies, the people we touch, the words we speak. He cares about those things because he took on a body himself, a physical body. And it's what we do in our bodies that we'll be evaluated by. The body is a term that Paul loves to expound upon. In 1 Corinthians, he writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There's a progression there. We can glorify God in our bodies. We can. But it's only because we've been bought with the precious broken body of Christ. And he, he continues with the body talk. He says in 1 Corinthians 12 that each of us, our individual bodies, are members now of Christ's body. Just like Matt talked about in the catechism. Our bodies speak for Christ to this world. That's why he cares what we do. He's given us something to do, which is to represent him. That's a huge deal. So no wonder he wants to, he wants to make sure this happens, and he will. We can please God. I think that's something important to remember. Sometimes we we self-deprecate so much that we say, ah, oh, I just can't please God, so I just, I'm just going to not, not go out and do anything. But that word please God in, cha- in verse 9, please him, is the same word as in a sacrifice being ple- pleasing to God. Like in Romans 12 when Paul urges us to offer our physical bodies as a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, we're not necessarily called to die for the cause, although we need to be willing to do that. It's a living sacrifice. It's something we're doing daily, which is giving over our life. And that is pleasing to God. And that's what Jesus wants from us, our very life, because he has purchased it. He wants us to crave being near him. So a question I have for me and us is, what is your aim in life? Where are you headed? Is it towards Jesus? Another word here for aim is ambition. What are your ambitions? What are your dreams? Do they align with God's ambitions? Do they align with God's dreams? Do they align with his future? 
Are you aiming towards eternity? Or is death too big of a distraction? Because Paul doesn't see death as a distraction. He looks right past it. And so we see here in verse 10 why Paul makes it the aim of his life to please Christ. It's because one day he will stand before the one whose very blood purchased Paul's life for his own. But we still need to ask the question, how? How does Paul put this to practice? This is just so intense. So let's double back and look at the how in verses 6, 7, and 8. We're looking at his method. How does he go about being able to give his life, whether it's life or death, to the Lord? I'm going to start in verse 5. He says, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We all want to walk through life with good courage, right? We all, want, we all want to be confident. We all want to be bold in what we're doing. We want to be secure in what we're doing, not insecure, not afraid. We all want this. We don't want to trudge through life and merely survive until we come face to face with our Lord. We want to be confident. And Paul declares that he is confident or of good courage or bold twice in this passage. So why? How does he have such confidence? Well, the first reason, the first reason for confidence is there in verse 5. It comes on the heels of God giving of us, giving to us of his spirit. I love what um, the New Living Translation, how it puts these verses. It just gets a good point across. It says, as a guarantee, he has given us his spirit so we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. So there's a contrast there. Paul says, God has given us the Spirit as a down payment of what's to come, and so I have confidence, even though being alive on earth means I am not yet united completely with Christ. I love what Cindy shared this morning because it's just so true. And I'm thankful that Paul admits, some, admits it here. He says, while you and I are alive right now, while we're alive on this earth, until we die, all will not yet be as it will be. It won't happen before death unless Jesus comes back before then. But it's been 2,000 years, so you, ne- you just can't, No, for sure, you know. He just comes right out and says it. In our current state, away from Christ, at least compared to what will be, and I just want to caveat, Jesus said, I will be with you until the end of the age. Yes. But not like he will be with us when that day comes. He is with us, as he promised. But what's to come is greater. All is not yet as it will be. It's just comforting to hear the truth of what we know in our gut to be true. And I love what's next there in verse 6. He says, while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. 
That word away can also be translated abroad. We're living abroad right now. If any of you have ever traveled to a distant land um, or to Tacoma or something, <laughs> no, Tacoma's fine, um, you know what it's like to come back to home, to Seattle, to crest, you know, I-5 and see the, the cityscape and you just go, oh, yes, I'm back. Part of living out a faithful life to Christ in our bodies here on this earth is to recognize that we are not home yet. Listen to these verses. Paul says in Philippians, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And then in Hebrews, the author writes, These people of faith, they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them from afar and greeted them, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then the last verse I want to share is actually from the same chapter, just a few paragraphs later. Paul says, God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is someone who does not live where they're being an ambassador from. They live elsewhere. They live abroad. So part of living this life, part of taking courage in the body that we're in right now is recognizing that. That we're not home yet. While we're here, we love sacrificially, incarnationally, like Jesus did. But we ain't from here. Our home is in heaven. And I want to just make sure and get across that I'm not saying we shouldn't love on this planet. Like as in love on this planet. Love planet Earth. But I am saying we're not to get invested in this version of it. We should be good stewards and leave this earth better than we came. But God is bringing a new heaven and a new earth. Yes, he will bring it here. And that is our home. So let's look at verse 7 to determine how we can still have courage despite this reality of things not yet being as they will be. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're in weak bodies. Yes, this world sucks sometimes. But God has bridged this gap of weakness. Because we have the Spirit, we can walk as God designed us to walk in these bodies, which is by faith, not by sight. Yes, we won't see the whole picture, but we can walk. What does it mean to walk by faith, not by sight? Well, first, it means that we are not self-made. We always remain 100% completely dependent on God. I don't know if any of you saw our daughter this morning, but she just she started to walk a little bit more and until very recently when she took her first steps on her own, which is awesome, um, 
She loves, loves, loves to walk. But she requires a finger or, you know, the hem of your garment. She requires something to hold on to while she walks. But when she gets it, she's like, let's do this. I'll go upstairs. I'll jump off rocks. I'll run. I'll walk. I'll do whatever you want me to do. It's awesome. But you, let, you, you remove that finger, and she just starts crawling again. And, you know, Lord willing, she will develop past that and walk on her own. But spiritually, as Christians, we are never to develop past the point of needing God and grabbing his hand. We're never to progress past that, ever. We're never to walk on our own. He's given of of his spirit to us. That means we are dependent on him. So that's the first thing it means. Second thing it means is that we need to believe that what God says about us is true. This includes what he says about our sin. This includes what he says about our righteousness. And this includes what he says about our future hope. According to the author of Hebrews, faith is, quote, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And like Justin talked about a couple weeks ago, back in chapter 4 there, these unseen things are guaranteed by the unseen one. When Jesus was talking about heaven, you know, he said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go there to prepare a place for you. And then he says something interesting. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. It's like, why did you feel the need to say that? But basically he's saying, believe me. I go to prepare a place for you. Do you believe it? Do we believe what he's doing right now and what he will do? So third thing, walking by faith, not by sight, means is that we must have a daily priority shift. My dad uh, used to drive my siblings and me to school. And as we were, there was like a 400-yard, you know, row that kind of crested the school and then we'd turn in. And it was always like right as we got on that strip, he would pray with us. And he would start out the prayer every day the same. He would say, Jesus, we give you our lives today. And that always stuck with me because it is a daily thing. You know, we think of giving our lives to Christ when you become a Christian as a one-time thing. But no, it's, it's just a constant thing. It's not even a daily thing. It's an hourly thing. It's a minutely thing. It means every day taking the fork in the road of our day towards realigning our desires with his desires. And I think there's a practical element here of, of being why most Christians throughout the ages have placed their reading of Scripture, their, their devotional time with the Lord in the morning. Because we forget. That's why we take communion every week, because we forget. That's why we sing every week, because we forget. We need to be reminded and daily and hourly realigning ourselves to be headed towards Christ. And we can only do that by his spirit and his heart. So Paul is confident 
because God has given the Spirit and we can walk by faith. But he's also confident. Look at, look at verse 8. He says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Don't get Paul wrong here and assume that he regrets that he's alive. We, uh, we studied chapter 1 a few months back, and, and in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, God delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He's thankful that he's alive. He just made it through something that could have caused his death. He's happy that he's alive. So don't get him wrong here that he, he's got a death wish. But this hope that he declares here, that at being at home with the Lord sounds better, it just reveals that even in life, Paul's gaze is set on what's after death. So, one day, we will be at home with the Lord. You're going to be at home with the Lord one day. But you're probably going to have to die first. There's a character in this book called Uncle Tom's Cabin that I just read. And there's a six-year-old girl named Eva who befriends the older um, slave, Uncle Tom, that her family bought. And over time, they just developed this, like, really, really rich relationship. And she's six years old. He's probably 50s or 60s. But they share this deep Christian faith together. And they're always reading Scripture together. She helps teach him a little bit how to read better through that. But she contracts this fatal illness or terminal illness. And she's sort of in the last few days, weeks of her life. And the author gives sort of a window into her perspective on being about to die. Uh, It says, It rested in the heart of Eva, a calm, sweet, prophetic certainty that heaven was near. Calm as the light of sunset, Sweet as the bright stillness of autumn, there her little heart reposed, only troubled by sorrow for those who loved her so dearly. For the child, though nursed so tenderly, and though life was unfolding before her with every brightness that love and wealth could give, she had no regret for herself in dying. In that book, which she and her simple old friend had read so much together, She had seen and taken to her young heart the image of one who loved the little child. And as she gazed and mused, he had ceased to be an image and a picture of the distant past and had come to be a living, all-surrounding reality. His love enfolded her childish heart with more than mortal tenderness, and it was to him, she said, she was going, and to his home. One day we will be at home with Jesus, face to face. Let us just bask in that for a minute. And while we do, I'm going to read you some passages that get it across. So for those who long for approval, think over what he says about this. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. 
Enter into the joy of your master. And for those who long for justice, think over what he says. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Lastly, for those who have suffered and long for peace, think over what he says. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We will be with the Lord. Oftentimes it's those Christians who have suffered loss, who grasp this longing. And we who have not suffered continue to be distracted by the allure, the busyness of this life. Those Christians who have lost a child or their health or suffered extensively don't have the option of thinking that this life is all there is. It just can't be. Of course, we who have not suffered so should not ask for those things to happen to us, but should ask and desire our hearts to know this longing. Because this longing makes sense for every single human being, those who have suffered or those who haven't. And it's really not only suffering that points us to this longing, it's often our deep struggles and sins that most poignantly direct us to this longing. I've struggled with worry and anxiety my whole life. There are, there are times in my childhood that I remember very specifically that I was just overcome with, with anxiety. It's like, come on, you're in middle school. What have you to be worried about? But that's just what I've struggled with. And so the thing, you know, over time that I've longed for over and over again is peace in the midst of anxiety, of worry, of stress. And I can seek peace all I want here on this earth, but it will always elude me in and of itself. Peace is a terrible God, but in Christ is perfect peace. And so that's what birthed my longing to spend eternity with Christ, and I long for that day. And that's how Paul gets to verse 9. Whether he's at home with Christ, a.k.a. dead, or away from Christ, alive, his aim is to please him. So Jesus is where Paul's headed, either way. Life, death, suffering, abundance, doesn't matter. I'm headed towards Jesus. Why should we aim that way? Because he purchased us with his blood because, and because the rewards available to us in giving our very lives to Christ far outweigh anything that we could gain here. And how do we do it? This is the best part. Because God has given us of his spirit, we are to walk daily, hourly with Jesus by faith and we are to look to the future, past death, when we will be fully with him, face to face. Do you have this longing? 
that Paul alludes to? Does being at home with the Lord sound like the best thing that could ever happen to you? What about to someone you know and love? Maybe you're not a Christian this morning, and yet you sort of have this longing, but you don't know who gave it to you. Today is the day to meet him who gave his life for you. So for the Christians here, how is this changing how we live? Does it affect the conversations we are willing to have? Does it give us boldness and confidence? Or are you fearful and apathetic or cynical? If you find yourself that you really just don't care or that this stuff just freaks you out, you're in good company. Let us confess this and thank Jesus for his righteousness that he has given to us and taken on our sin. And let's ask him to realign our desires as we worship him with our voices and also as we go out from here with our very lives. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your righteousness. We thank you that you took on a body, you came here, you lived a righteous life, you died the death that we deserved so that we might live with you forever. Lord, help us to realize the magnitude of what you've done so that we can then be willing and eager and joyful and bold to offer our lives unto you. Jesus, thank you, that the, thank you for the rewards that are available to us in Jesus Christ. Help us to have our priorities straight. Help us to have our perspective aligned towards the things of God. And we give you our lives today. In Jesus' name. All right, so we're going to spend some time in worship.